Welcome to the Top 10, where we explore some of the most influential films from different movie genres. I'm Vicky Sayers and I'm joined by film critic and broadcaster James Cameron Wilson. So we're talking about the science fiction now, James. We are talking about science fiction. Or I should say the science fiction film, not the science fiction, which makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Tell me more. We are talking about science fiction, which is about as long and has been around for as long as cinema has. Mm -hmm. I think what's extraordinary about science fiction is that you can pretty much make a film about anything in science fiction. A lot of it sort of crosses over to fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I, for my selection of the top ten greatest science fiction films of all time, (laughs) is very much specifically dealing with the science rather than... The fiction. Well, some people (laughs) talk about Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks, a science fiction. I said, no, it's science fact. Yeah, that's true. So some people don't get sci-fi. So I, I'm, I'm going with the, the real nuts and bolts of it. Okay. Here. Science fiction really kicked off with Georges Méliès' A Trip to the Moon in 1903. Wow. One of the earliest films. And there's this sequence with the moon looking at you, and he's got um, a monocle. Um, it's not actually a monocle. It's like a telescope in his eye. Right. And it's yeah, one yeah. of the most oldest images of cinema and is very representative of early cinema. Mm-hmm. And Georges Méliès was a huge pioneer in the medium. And then it became very trivialised, and for many decades, no less, it was uh, had this fan base, much as it does now with the Avengers films, mm-hmm. but Flash Gordon, where he was serialised, Saturday mornings, yeah. uh, Dan Dare-type kind of s- sort of slapdash children's adventure things. And... It was always the low-budget films that defined science fiction, like them being a prime example. And, of course, on television we had Doctor Who, which was still a phenomenon. But more recently, it is being taken really seriously. And I will go through the films and explain why, because I'm going to take the milestones in the genre. Okay. But I think in the last 10 years, sci-fi has really grown up. It right has up upped to, the stakes. It's, well, it's become more intelligent, more yeah. grown up. And right up to Brad Pitt's trip to Neptune in Ad Astra, mm-hmm. which isn't in my list. There are quite a few. Ad Astra being Latin for two of the stars, which is inspired by many of the films in my list. I'm going to start all the way back to the silent era, Vicky. Okay with a film called Metropolis, 1927, which changed science fiction. Bearing in mind, it had already been around for 20 years by this stage. Because from the title, at least me, I wouldn't necessarily think that sounds sci-fi. No? Well, it's interesting you should say that, because it's directed by Fritz Lang. Mm -hmm. And he was inspired when he went to New York to make this film. Now, New York has grown up itself a lot over the ensuing 100 years. Mm. It's absolutely amazing. But it's so inspired, Fritz Lang, that he made this parable about the haves and the have-nots in the future. I think, yeah, it was set in the year 2000. Wow. And looking at it now, that's imagining how the world would be. Yeah. That was the year that Billy Elliot was released. <laughs> that's amazing. That, that was 19 years ago. It's yeah. quite extraordinary. Yeah. And science fiction... Whether it be Blade Runner or Star Wars, they all own a debt 
to Metropolis. They use special effects that had never been used before, using perspective, miniatures and mirrors. Actors standing in mirrors and being reflected to give the impression that they're standing in these amazing sets. It was so far advanced for its age and influential as well. Basically about the capitalist elite that lives in a New York-inspired metropolis and the proletariat that live underground. Right. Featuring a famous robot called the Maschinenmensch. Right. Who is a mechanical representation of Maria, played by Bridget Helm, who was iconic in her time. And you see posters of this film of Maria, Bridget Helm, Mm -hmm. and versions of Bridget Helm, particularly when the Maschin and Mensch is melting and you see all the plastic and metal just running down into your eyes. Very, very powerful stuff. At the time, it was the most expensive film ever made in Europe. Mm -hmm. It is quite long. There have been so many different versions of it released. An 84-minute version, uh, over two-hour version, and some bizarre country. They found some missing film, and it's been restored so many times. In 1984, there was a version which was released called Giorgio Moroder Presents... Metropolis, right. where he wrote he wrote the music to Midnight Express and he did a lot of electronic music for Donna Summer, etc. Okay. But he produced a, a rock soundtrack including such artists as Pat Benatar, Freddie Mercury, Bonnie oh, wow. Tyler and Adam Ant to this Metropolis version of Metropolis. So there have been many versions of this film. Okay. And pretty much sci-fi for the last century owes a debt to this film, mm-hmm. as it does to the next film, made okay. many decades later, in 1968, 2001, A Space Odyssey, the ultimate mind trip. Okay. And has created so many touchstones of its own, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Keir Dalley and Gary Lockwood, as influential in its way as Metropolis inspired by Arthur C. Clarke's short story, The Sentinel. Many of the best sci-fi films, I think, were based on short stories rather than novels. And science fiction was never the same again. Critics have praised the film for its technological feats and the climactic cosmic ride. But there are so many elements in this film, from the, the opening of the apes discovering tools But for me, watching it again is not the famous music, Johann Strauss, The Blue Danube, which whenever you hear that now, I can only think of these space stations spiralling in Mm. the cosmos, or Richard Strauss, Also Sprach Zarathustra, which whenever you hear that, that is 2001, that summons it up. (laughs) And of course, HAL, the brutally expressionless supercomputer, which possibly the film's ace card. I'm sorry, Dave. I cannot do that, Dave. I'm scared. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the voice was quite extraordinary and really made that. Hmm. And it's sort of in my head. I, <laughs> I can't get it out. <laughs> um, a villain that really establishes 2001 as the most disturbing film ever bestowed with a U oh, certificate. Wow. But for me, what was really extraordinary was the silence in this film. Right. People remember it for Alsace Sprach, Zarathustra, 
and the Blue Danube. And how? But there's the silence of space, mm. which is so frightening. So when Gary Lockwood is out there in his spacesuit, and you can all you can hear is his breathing uh. accelerating, um, so powerful. Because that's reminding me of gravity, which I know we'll talk about later. Of course we will. Um, but that it just immediately makes me think of that because I felt so claustrophobic watching that when when it's so quiet when they're up there. Indeed, mm. yes. Space is quiet yeah. in space. No one can hear you scream. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another um, genre entirely, I think. Well, you mentioned Gravity, which co-stars yes. George Clooney. Mm-hmm. And he starred in a film called Solaris. And I would like to combine that, because in some ways, I think if you're going to see Solaris, based on the short story by Stanislav Lem, the Polish writer, I think maybe you need to see the new American one. Now... This is blasphemy. I am a critic saying you should see the remake and not the original. I was going to say, he must have been about 10 in the original. <laughs> well, it, indeed, 1972. It's generally considered as Andrei Tarkovsky's masterpiece. It is very long. It is very slow. And Sounds as, great. <laughs> I've sold it, haven't you? Yeah. Like many of these sci-fi films, it starts on Earth and you see the green of Earth, mm. as in Ad Astra as well, and the flowing rivers... And you think how wonderful Earth is, how lucky we are to have beaches and the ocean and the waves and the streams. Mm. And then you go into space and you have that silence. Mm. And Solaris is this organism that is a planet which manifests one's fears and loved ones into physical beings. Sounds terrible. And people go mad. (laughs) I bet. And I started watching it again. It is very, very long. Yeah. How long? It's almost three hours. Yeah. Whereas the George Clooney one, which is just as good, mm. directed by Steven Soderbergh, one of the finest filmmakers working today, it's much more concise mm. and is equally powerful for that. But one has to mention Solaris because, like Metropolis, like 2001, it has been so influential yeah. within the genre. And it was a breakthrough because it was a grown-up, psychologically dense film in a genre that usually had funny little robots running around. Yeah. This was a serious adult sci-fi mm. film, which brings us to five years later, the year when science fiction was completely changed forever. Two films, one directed by George Lucas, one directed by Steven Spielberg. Spielberg's name keeps on coming up. I'm going to go with them in alphabetical order. Okay. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg's masterpiece. But what is an encounter of a of the first kind. Yeah, good question. Well, a I UFO a... sighting right. is an encounter of the first kind. Okay. Physical evidence is an encounter of the second kind. Abduction? An encounter of the third kind. You're jumping ahead a bit. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the third kind is actually an encounter right. with an extraterrestrial oh, okay. presence or species. And... It's just such an enormously thrilling ride, which had the intelligence not to cast the visitors as threatening or a malicious threat. And we see the arrival, for Mm -hmm. want of a better word, through the eyes of Richard Dreyfus, who is a repairman. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a great time in the 1970s. Uh, And to think this was just after Jaws was quite Mm. amazing. And this was, film was so commercially successful. Yeah. And he's just driving along and he's, his face gets burnt 
by the flare, the light from this flying saucer. Mm -hmm. And then everything cuts out dead in his truck. And then he goes on this pursuit to try and find out what was that? What was that, yeah. (laughs) Who are those guys? (laughs) And it's a long movie. And I don't want to say anything more for those people who haven't seen it. Like me. It is a masterpiece. (laughs) And inevitably, as so often in these films, you get the authority figures who just want to contain Mm. what it is, destroy it. And the great French filmmaker Francois Truffaut plays a scientist who's brought in. And, but we go with Richard Dreyfus the whole way. Mm-hmm. And I should also point out that these stunning special effects by Douglas Trumbull, who also did the special effects for 2001, A Space Odyssey, and that memorable score from John Williams. Science fiction grew up in, in a way with that because Steven Spielberg combined intelligent forethought that hasn't been really seen until a film that I shall be bringing up later, which is possibly my all-time favourite sci-fi film. And then we have, we should play a blast of music from this film. Okay, (laughs) and so we will. Here it is. Star Wars, directed by George Lucas, 1977. This, If that wasn't clear. <laughs> <laughs> In case, listeners, you didn't recognise that piece of music. <laughs> Sci-fi, there's some really interesting films like THX 1138, Silent Running, films of the late 60s, early 70s that were starting to be grown-up adult films about sci-fi. Star Wars brought it into the big-scale, big-budget arena, mm-hmm. which... Nobody thought at the time to put so much money into sci-fi because people, it was a a limited niche Mm. attraction, really. When I saw Star Wars in 1977 at the Dominion, the excitement, the atmosphere in that cinema was palpable. You could have cut it with a chainsaw. It was quite extraordinary. And when that scroll on the screen came on (laughs) in a universe far, far away, um, wow. And it has now become so iconic at the time. It's yeah. sort of inspired by the Arthurian legends. And, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi, played by Alec Guinness, is this Merlin figure to Arthur, who is, of course, Luke Skywalker. And all these names from Chewbacca and Han Solo, Princess Leia, R2-D2, C-3PO, who was based on the robot in Forbidden Planet, which was a sci-fi film, I'm just mentioning in passing, which was quite significant, but not in my list. Um, One cannot overestimate this film. It's now spawned an Ennead, which I think is the correct word for a collection of nine. Okay. Because there will now be nine Star Wars films, and including spin-offs, such as Solo, A Star Mm -hmm. Wars Story, 2018, marred by a very weak leading man, and by the numbers direction... Of All People by Ron Howard. I am so tired of this genre now, I am afraid, because there's been some remarkable films there. But again, a magnificent score by John Williams. And I'm sort of missing out a whole side. Maybe we'll do another programme on films like Superman. Yeah. 
the Avengers films. That is sci-fi, but it's not... I'm doing serious like sci-fi. subcategory. <laughs> yeah, it's an offshoot yeah. of sci-fi. And some people will say, although it's the highest-grossing film of all time, uh, Avatar was the highest-grossing film for of all time for 10 years mm-hmm. until it was knocked off the top perched by Avengers Endgame, okay. which is now the highest-grossing film of all time, which is, I suppose, sci-fi. Mm-hmm. It deals Never with... really thought of it like that, but that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, yeah, I'm, I'm going with adult stuff. And again, in 1982, we had a film by Ridley Scott called Blade Runner, again adapted from a short story. Which has such a great name. Do you have it there? Do Androids Dream of Electric I just think that's so good. By Philip K. Dick, yeah. who supplied many of story of great science fiction films and introduces us to the world of The Replicant. It was a film where the weather was really bad, mm-hmm. where neon advertising dominated the skyline. Um, you know, it was set in the year 2019 when Los Angeles had become a much more multicultural place. Large corporations exercised an alarming monopoly. More significantly, the science of robotics had reached a point where androids were indistinguishable from humans. And all this is happening now. Yeah, that someone had a time machine, I think, there and monopolised it very well by pretending they were making up a story, but actually it's just the truth in the future. Ridley Scott's film opened in 1982, mm-hmm. uh, the film itself, and I, its visual prescience was a thing of wonder. And I think what was really clever about Ridley Scott was he com- because the past never goes away, and the past is there in Blade Runner, mm-hmm. as is the future. And films like Minority Report as well, another sci-fi film, Steven Spielberg, again, he shows the past, there are old farmhouses, as well as these startling new glass monoliths that you see in New York, Shanghai, and unfortunately, London. Mm. But watching it again, uh, it still exerts a considerable power, and its key moments do stand the test of time. And it seems like a sacrilege to say it now, but Blade Runner ain't what it used, used to be. And when you see Harrison Ford as the eponymous replicant hitman Rick Deckard use a telephone box in 2019, yeah. it does raise a chuckle. I mean, I love the fact that these umbrellas had sort of neon, light, lightable sort of uh, handles. Yeah. And so much of it, I thought, that's a really good idea. And some of it has been used. Mm. And then you think, how daft. Why would <laughs> Why Harrison would Ford, Rick Deckard, have to go into a telephone yeah. box? They don't exist The things they anymore. miss, exactly. But considering, and I had the most fascinating interview with Ridley Scott, who was talking about how, Name drop. <laughs> how people <laughs> in the future will grow back limbs and so forth. And that has really come forth. I mean, mm. we can't grow limbs yet. In little sticky bags, he said they'll be called. And I did say to him, I said, Ridley, I said, why is it called Blade Runner? He said, I have no idea, but it's a cool, really cool title, isn't it? <laughs> That is very cool. Open to interpretation as well. Of course, yes. And now we're going to go on to a film. Uh, this is a film that you have seen called Gravity with George Clooney. Yes. And more importantly, Sandra, Sandra Bullock. Bullock. absolutely. So who good. should have won the Oscar for this and not for 
the other film she did, The Blind Side, <laughs> which I thought she was rather one-dimensional in it. She won the Oscar for that. Mm-hmm. She was terrific in this. Directed by Alfonso Cuaron, who won the Oscar for Best Director. It also won Oscars for Best Cinematography, Best Editing. It was just so exciting. And how one person on screen, and I think this is where Ad Astra falls down, because pretty much it's a one-man show with mm. Brad Pitt. Here, this is pretty much one show with Sandra Bullock, mm-hmm. but she holds the screen, yeah. and it looks phenomenal. It actually made me feel sick because I felt like I was there. You know, I, space terrifies me. So the fact that it was just so realistic, her being up there and the kind of, uh, as I said before, claustrophobia, um, even though there's so much space, it's almost like it's all pressing in on you. And, and oh, I just thought it was so good the way that it made me feel horrible, but not not in a negative way, like I wouldn't watch it again, but just because I was in the cinema and I was just ab- absorbed completely. I'd say it's one of the only films probably where I, I almost forgot I was in the cinema with all these other people, you know. That's saying a lot. Yeah. I you thought were it was transported, great. Yeah, Vicky. not necessarily in a good way, but yeah, it just consolidated the fact I never want to go to space. I just remember the hurtling debris. Yeah. It was so frightening. Yeah, because it was really quiet, wasn't it, until that forgets, happened. there was a lot of debris out there. Yeah. And an even more scary film. Yep. Interstellar. What the only word, well, the repeated word I remember from this film is Murph, just over and over oh, again. Murph, Murph. who's played by three different actresses. It was really good, but um, sad. And in her middle, middle years, played by Jessica Chastain. Yep. And in her later years by Ellen Burstyn. And which is so weird that Matthew McConaughey has a daughter played by Ellen yeah. Burstyn, who's, what, 86 <laughs> yes. now? But she had to age up for that role. Oh, really? Which is quite extraordinary, because yeah. she was about 80 at the time herself. But she's in really She needs to look more 80. <laughs> um, I think Christopher Nolan, who directed Interstellar, is arguably one of the five greatest filmmakers working mm. in cinema today. And he's made many great films, but perhaps none so resonant, pertinent, profound, and just as audacious as Interstellar. It's really frightening. This is a film that is post-internet. And I've always felt, what would happen when we no longer have electricity? We have to rely on old-fashioned book books and not Kindle. We can't reboot batteries anymore. Not only that, we're running out of water. And there were so many little touches in it I like when they sit down for dinner. They have to put cloth over the water jug because the dust doesn't mm. get into it. Because with water so scarce, yeah, you don't there's dust it. everywhere. I, I saw this with a friend who is very much behind Extinction Rebellion. Mm. He was deeply disturbed by this film. So he said, that's where we're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People should see Interstellar. Interstellar, made in 2014, is more relevant now mm. than it was in 2014. Christopher Nolan, talk about prescience. He was so far ahead. And what an amazing cast. Matthew McConaughey, the Oscar winner, Matthew McConaughey. Anne Hathaway, an Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. Jessica Chastain should be an Oscar winner. <laughs> the Oscar winning Alan Burstyn. David O'Yellowo, the Oscar winning Casey Affleck the Oscar-winning Matt Damon, and the Oscar-winning Michael Caine. Just alone, those characters. And there are so many other people in it. It looks amazing, and it just takes you, as science fiction should, just that further beyond, sort of pushing the quantum physical Mm -hmm. and making you think, well, we don't know everything. We only know what we can see and feel. We don't even know how a dog interprets the world who who thinks through its nose. (laughs) This film was so good and so brilliant on every single level. And yet, I think 
I must mention, Arrival, mm-hmm. made in 2016. It is scientifically proven that the language we learn as a child physically moulds our brains as to how we perceive the world around us. Some cultures have no words for West or East or earlier or later and so are unable to comprehend the linear limitations that define our own universe. This is a film about language. I am a writer and a journalist, so I'm obsessed with language. Um, So what happened yesterday is not a concept for some cultures that makes any more sense to them than what is going to happen tomorrow. Mm. Life is. But because of the language, we think of tomorrow as something that's going to happen in a few hours. Yeah. But that is a concept that our brain has moulded itself round. To put it crudely, stuff just happens. But all civilizations are still reliant on words to express their ideas, needs and feelings, even in the land of the blind and the land of the deaf. Arrival is about, like in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, an intelligence. And Amy Adams, who, what, she's got six Oscar nominations now? I don't know, but that sounds about right. She's in Vice. She plays Dickens' wife. Her her job is to communicate with an extraterrestrial intelligence whose very law of physics are alien to our own. So how do you communicate with them if you don't have words? Mm. She plays Louise Banks, a linguistics professor who is called on to help interpret the sounds of alien visitors. But the really scary thing is not the aliens, but the world's response to their arrival. She wants to communicate. She wants to find maybe they can help us. But as with all these films, the government just wants to sort of compartmentalise them and restrict them. And for our last film, amazingly, this is very hard to believe, but Denis Villeneuve, the French-Canadian man who made Arrival, Mm -hmm. also directed the film at number 10. And people should, he should be a household name because he is the new Steven Spielberg. He directed oh, okay. Blade Runner 2049, and it's sacrilege to say that I actually thought this was better than Blade <laughs> Runner. Science has moved on. Yeah. And it's, again, like Interstellar and Arrival, it's brought a huge intelligence to the genre. Um, and <laughs> yes, we're still suffering from terrible weather. Mm hmm. Uh, but we in this film, we're divested of all vegetation and animal life. And there were wonderful moments, I remember, when Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, again, mm-hmm. talked about the fact that all he can dream of is cheese because we no longer have cheese. And there's a sequence when uh, Ryan Gosling gets uh, like an antique and it's got some, some wood in it. Mm-hmm. And he says it's going to cost a fortune. Wood doesn't exist anymore. I don't even remember that bit. Uh, and that's what, well, that really stuck yeah. in my mind how we take these things for yeah. granted and the way the planet is going. Um, it is an extraordinarily powerful film. Mm-hmm. I hate to end there. A sobering having thought. Having really talked about <laughs> The Martian, Ridley Scott is another of the great sci fi mm-hmm. directors, and The Martian was great fun as well. Yeah, that was really good. Thank you so much, James. That's it for this episode of the Top 10. Join us next time for more.